Good afternoon and welcome to the All Souls Forum. Today's presentation, Why New Nuclear Power Plants Should Not Be Built, with Bob I, was recorded November 19, 2023 at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Was recorded November 19, 2023 at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, this morning, we have uh, attorney Bob I, who's a longtime friend of mine and associate uh, who's helped uh, helped me with environmental issues. In fact, his main areas of specialty have been environmental, uh, reproductive uh, rights for women. And the subject for today is he specialized uh, helping citizens fight uh nuclear plants and also the uh, disposition of the waste that they still haven't figured out how to get rid of. After the speaker finishes, we'll have a, a Q&A session. So I'll just hand it over to Bob. Good morning. And thanks a lot, Craig, for that introduction. I appreciate it. And, you know, Craig and I go back a few years, maybe a few decades, actually. And uh, we've had a lot of experiences. And these struggles in which we engage are rarely easy, they are rarely quick, and they are never cheap. But they're always worthwhile, as it turns out, even at the low points when you begin to question decisions about having gone forward in the first place. It's just the nature of these struggles. It's the nature of the journey that that, that they require. And part of that is an opportunity to to come and interact and and talk with people like you. I mean, I, I I can't tell you how much I enjoy it because you can get kind of siloed sometimes and feel like you're out there a little bit by yourself. But in, in fact, that's not the case. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here and, and share this time with you today and to be a part of the forum again, which uh, anything that can last since 1943 to now uh, that's got some staying power, and that by itself makes it important. As Craig mentioned, I, I want to speak today a little bit about kind of the current state of play when it comes to commercial nuclear power. Now, I'll contrast that with the weapons complex, which really has an entirely different set of policy uh, imperatives that uh, that underpin it compared to with commercial. The commercial nuclear industry is characterized by nuclear power plants owned mostly by electric generators, electric utilities. And at the, at the peak in the United States, there were 108 operating commercial reactors. Uh, that number peaked about 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It's now down to about 93, if my last tally is correct, that I did the other day. And a lot of these plants are closing uh, because they're not economic anymore. Uh, some have closed because they required huge capital expenses and additions to bring them up to uh, standards uh, and to make them more economical. Those investments are so uh, huge that some utilities have decided that instead of making them, they will walk away from the plant and, and look to other sources of generation. And I'll touch on this in a moment as well. There is a very active bailout 
uh, going on of nuclear plants around the country. This is done mostly at the state level, uh, although uh, in, the infra in the Infrastructure Act that was passed 18 months ago or two years ago or so, there was about $6 billion set aside to subsidize uneconomic uh, nuclear plants. Uh, $6 billion isn't going to go very far, uh, frankly. I mean, it, it sounds like a substantial amount of money, but when you're spreading it over these very expensive facilities, uh, it doesn't go very far, and I don't expect it to, to spur any uh, particular or to provide any additional incentive to build more nuclear plants. The state bailouts are really a function of uh, partly a Supreme Court case that I participated in, good Lord, 40 years ago, where the United States Supreme Court said that for purposes of economics, states can regulate nuclear power plants. And that was up in the air up to that point, because I can tell you that before that case, the nuclear industry wanted desperately to have the states out of the regulatory uh, apparatus, especially on economics, uh, because it would have made their lives functionally much simpler to simply deal with one agency that would call all the shots for all 50 states. Instead, now you get not all states have commercial reactors, of course, but the states that do have commercial reactors like Kansas, Missouri, for economic and for rate purposes, those are regulated at the state level. So if a state, for example, California, a number of years ago, enacted a statute that said, unless and until there can be a, a demonstrated means by which to handle spent nuclear fuel, that is high-level radioactive waste, unless and until that can be demonstrated, no new reactors may be built in California. It sent a shockwave through the industry when that was passed. And I, I might say that when it worked its way through the California Assembly, it, there wasn't, I mean, there was some controversy about it, but not really that much. Because, you know, you, you love to hear politicians when they say, well, I have a common sense solution which usually when you hear that you should reach for your wallet and make sure you still got it in hand. But this was really a common sense. They said, look, if you don't have a means by which to, to deal with the, the byproducts of this activity, you shouldn't be doing it. I mean, it, and it, so when it passed, there wasn't a lot of controversy, but the industry, in particular one nuclear utility in, in California sued the state on it. And it went to the United States Supreme Court and by a 9-0 a, a, a count, 9-0, uh, the court said, no, states have this, have this power. They drew a very bright line, however, between economics and everything else that deals with nuclear power, which is pretty much the sole jurisdiction of the federal government under two primary agencies, one's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and then, of course, the Department of Energy also has some say in these, in these matters. This has become particularly acute recently because the nuclear industry, in decline by any reasonable uh, standard, it is in decline. The number of plants that are they're operating is in decline. Plants are not being built anymore, at least in, in the United States, with a few rare exceptions. And so the industry looked around, and when climate change 
began to be an issue, the industry, the nuclear industry, saw an opportunity. And that opportunity stems from the fact that the operation of a nuclear reactor, the operation of a nuclear reactor, doesn't generate greenhouse gases. That's, that's the good part of it. Pretty much everything else about nuclear power does have a greenhouse gas burden. Let me talk about the one that gives the industry the most problems and one that there is a fix for, but it would cost more. And that is the use of concrete. Worldwide, concrete accounts for between 8 and 10% of all the greenhouse gases that are, that are released in the atmosphere. Really, a rather astonishing, uh, astonishingly high number. And that number has been pretty stable for really as long as we've been keeping track of it. In response, the uh, there have been proposals and advances to uh, manufacture concrete without such a, a, a large discharge of greenhouse gas emissions. That technology is out there, but it increases the price of the product enough that it's not being I guess you could say embraced by the market at this point. It'll probably require some tax incentives or disincentives, some penalties if you don't do things like this. But those are not really on the horizon right now. So currently, nuclear power plants are built uh, using an enormous amount of concrete. And that concrete has a greenhouse gas charge to it. The the one of the ironies is, of course, the stricter safety guidelines get for nuclear power plants, and they've they've become incrementally more strict over time. Usually, the more concrete is needed to meet those requirements. So you have this kind of collision between safety and greenhouse gases that's really pretty hard to reconcile, unless unless. There's a willingness to spend more for this low greenhouse gas concrete. So far, the, there's no big rush to do that. About in the United States, about a third of all of our greenhouse gas emissions come from generation of electricity. About a third, about a quarter comes from vehicles, transportation. So between those two sectors, electric generation and transportation, you can account for over half of the greenhouse gases that are being uh, put in the atmosphere on a day-to-day -day basis. Obviously, getting those levels down has been an imperative. In the electric industry, uh, it, I've, I've dealt with regulatory issues of the electric industry for decades. They're very, very slow to change. Uh, Drag kicking and screaming is not an not an, an inappropriate way to describe getting utilities, not just ones in the Midwest, but countrywide. It's been difficult to get utilities weaned off of things like coal and nuclear. And part of this goes back to an engineering culture that utilities uh, have maintained for, you know, really since the the early 20th century, and that is that large centralized generating plants with a system of transmission and distribution is the model by which we 
get electricity to everybody's switches when they turn it on. Large centralized generating plants with a network of transmission and distribution. Large centralized generating plants came about because of economies of scale. Uh, the larger the plant, the more customers that could be used or could be served, spread the costs out over more people, lowering each individual's costs, at least on paper. That's the way it goes. And, you know, for years, in fact, I can tell you it was almost until the beginning of electric rate generation, which happened in the early 20th century. Um uh, Rate increases for electricity were frequently measured in the tenths of cents, tenths of percents. I mean, it just didn't go up very much. Here's the difference, and you can chart it. In the 19, late 70s and early 80s, when the big building boom of nuclear plants happened, those rate increases went from tenths of a percent to 90%, 98% or more. There's nothing like a big rate increase to get ratepayers' attention and to get them looking critically at you know why this is happening. And there's no and the size of the customer usually just increases the amount of scrutiny. I'll give you an example. In the early 1970s, uh, when there was a perceived crunch on uh, electric generation capacity, the Suffolk County Legislature on Long Island in New York voted overwhelmingly to build the uh, Shoreham nuclear plant. It was going to be located at, kind of out on the north tip of Long Island, pretty isolated. And in fact, remarkably isolated. The Suffolk County Legislature saw a demand for electricity was climbing, their capacity was pretty stagnant, and they were afraid that they were going to hit a shortfall. And they would, the, the horror story of blackouts and brownouts began to circulate. And so the Suffolk County governing body said, we, we need to build this plant. They encouraged the Long Island Lighting Company, which is the utility out there, to build it. They were, they were agitating for it anyway. They wanted to add that to their capacity. And so they did. They began building it, which everybody, I'd say there was a broad public support for the Shoreham plant until the accountants got involved and said, look, to pay for this, rates for ratepayers in Long Island are going to go up maybe 60, 70, 80 percent. The largest employer on Long Island at that time, was the Grumman Aircraft Company. Grumman said, really? We've already got property in Georgia. We'll pick up our plant, lock, stock, and barrel, and take our thousands of jobs with us, plus the subcontractors and their jobs, and we'll go to Georgia. Panic set in in the Suffolk County Legislature. Their strong support for the Shoreham nuclear plant went to strong position of the plant. And that's when I got involved. Um, I had a friend who was an economist who was working for, the, for a law firm in New York at that time. And he said, we've been hired to, to work on the Shoreham nuclear plant. Um, he said, you know, we need help. We need legal help. 
and uh, asked me to get involved. So I did. And it became pretty clear that the Shoreham plant was sort of a poster child for some of the problems that, that we have to deal with in, in the context of nuclear power. For instance, one of the hearings we had and that, that was part of my responsibility was emergency uh, procedure, procedures. In. And as I studied this, it became clear very quickly that there was a major problem with having a nuclear plant on Long Island. I don't know if anybody's ever been to Long Island. There's two ways on and two ways off the island, bridges. The day that we happened to have one of the, one of the days that this hearing occurred, there was a raging snowstorm going on outside. We were in Garden City, New York, where they staged this hearing. Now, I was cross-examining a, a utility witness, and he, he said, sort of bad lib, as I, as I found out later, that I said, well, what do you do for evacuations off of Long Island? He said, well, I've got the bridges. I said, look, I was on one of those bridges this morning. I didn't think I was going to get here on time because I was essentially turned into a parking lot on this bridge. I said, you're telling me you're going to get everybody on Long Island off of Long Island using these two bridges? Tell that the, the wheels sort of were grinding at that point. And he said, well, we also have a plan is his word, to commandeer uh, private boats and shuttle people from Long Island over to Manhattan Island. I couldn't resist it. I said, you mean sort of like Dunkirk? I said, what if, it, what if you got to do it on a day like today where there was almost a whiteout? I said, you're going to get a bunch of people lined up to get their boats out here? to take people across. I said, have you thought this out? It was clear that they hadn't thought it out. They were kind of desperate. So that became headlines in the Times, New York Times the next day, about how the utility had just sort of, I don't want to say overlooked, hadn't thought through completely all the contingencies that they might have to deal with in a radiological uh, uh, hazard situation where they would have to do mass evacuations. So not too long after that, negotiations began between Long Island Lighting Company, Lilco, and the team that I was on about what to do. Because it was pretty clear that the public opposition to this was just growing every day, not only because Ratepayers were looking at astronomical increases in what it was going to cost us for electric service. But now you get this low probability, granted, a low probability event of a radiological um, accident at the plant that would cause mass evacuation. Low probability, but crying out loud, high consequence if it does happen, which is how nuclear, the, the industry is characterized. Low probability, but boy, stand back and run for cover if it happens, because it's high consequence. So the negotiations started around essentially buying Lilco's problem and shutting the plant down before it ever opened. Uh, this was heresy, I could tell you, in the late 
but it was the early 1990s. This was heresy. The idea that you would have a plant that cost, it was in excess of $3 billion in, in $1990, that's a lot of money, that you'd never use. I mean, th this was a tough sell. And Mario Cuomo was the governor at that point. It, it, he was apoplectic. Uh, he said, we, you know, we, this can't happen. And yet he realized he was getting the heat as well from ratepayers. He knew that on his watch, he didn't want the largest employer out on Long Island pulling up stakes and going south to Georgia. He knew he sure as heck knew he didn't want to deal with that. So the negotiations went on. There were some on my side of the case that said, you know, Loco made this decision totally what they consider to be well-informed with all their experts saying, yes, go ahead, spend this money, make these, uh, make this project happen. So some of us said their decision, their risk, their loss. And that would have meant LOCO would probably have sought, had to seek bankruptcy protection. And but we took a hard line. And I can remember we walked out of those negotiations and that was what was going to happen. We weren't going to buy anything from LOCO. They were going to have to suffer the consequences for their decision and seek bankruptcy protection. So I got an airplane, came home. And there was a message waiting for me when I got home. This is back in the days with the recorder. You know, you checked when you got home. It said, uh, to the, the message was from my colleague, uh, Mario Cuomo says he's not going to authorize this, so get some clean shirts and come back. So I did. I went back, and we finally negotiated what, a, a, what amounted to a buyout, uh, where we stuck ratepayers with about 12, 14 years of lightly increased rates each year that would compensate, not fully, but partially compensate LOCO for their losses. It was, it was a decision that, you know, it wasn't really driven by economics. It wasn't really driven by safety considerations. It was driven by the politics of it. It really was. And, you know, I, I can remember not feeling particularly good about it. But on the other hand, we did have a plan. That was the only one in the United States that this has ever happened to. It was constructed. It was fueled up. It was licensed and never operated. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, really, and, and, and to think about this for a second, you know, as the radiation flies, that plant was only about 40 miles from Times Square. They're pretty darn close. And, of course, when the assumption is made that nuclear is always safe, you know, you say it could be four miles. Who cares? It's safe. Don't worry about it. And this was, uh, again, I would hasten to add, um, prior to uh, Three Mile Island, prior to Chernobyl, of course, prior to Fukushima. And all of those realities now are simply reminders of the additional costs that nuclear imposes. These are not costs that go away. And in large measure, that on the accident side of it, they're kind of unpredictable costs as well. Um, so, but this all goes back to the industry's push now 
to revive nuclear as a means by which to combat uh, climate change. And I'll just briefly go through uh, why I think this eventually, this faw, faw enthusiasm for nuclear will go away. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, nuclear is expensive. And when you compare nuclear to other forms of generation, it's really astonishingly more expensive. For example, um, this is the cost of electricity per megawatt hours. This is the big measure, kind of the gross measure that's used to compare costs. Um, solar uh, in per megawatt hour, um, and this is in 2021 dollars, would cost $36 and change. Uh, nuclear is 88 and change. So there's really, it's not a race there. It's, it's not a race on costs. Uh, nuclear is clearly, the capital costs of delivering a nuclear plant are clearly more than what it costs to, to tilt up a, a wind generator or bolt uh, a, uh, a photovoltaic panel on uh, either the, a rooftop or a standalone utility scale facility. So the costs take it out. Okay, let's overlook the costs because we want to get rid of greenhouse gases and that gamma to, to, to avoid the worst effects of climate change, we're willing to pay the extra money. Okay? All right, let's let's overlook the cost problem for a second. You got some other things to overlook if you're going to do this. Uh, you have to overlook the history of accidents, which again, low frequency but high consequence. You have to overlook a history of cost overruns, which are really from an economic standpoint should be showstoppers. For example, the Vogel nuclear plant, the, the, the last two units of the Vogel nuclear plant down in Georgia were just finished and are just coming online right now. Those poor ratepayers down in Georgia, they're, they're about to get stuck with a lifetime of excess costs for their electricity that will not be a minor uh, 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 inconvenience. These are going to be big numbers. Vogel went up about five times its original estimate of cost and exceeded the, the timeline to build it by seven or eight years. Now, seven or eight years, think, well, that's not all that much. The problem with it is when you're, when you're borrowing money in billions of dollars and you tack on another seven or eight years of interest, Somebody's got to pay it. Utilities only get their money really from one place. Ratepayers. And they're they're going to hit ratepayers with a series of rate increases over the years that will really uh, hobble the Georgia economy. It will keep businesses from going there, particularly businesses that are high electricity users. They're going to take they're going to take one look at the base rate and say, we're going to go to a state that's got a lot of wind and solar. Um, so you have to overlook these, these major, these major problems. Plus you're doing it in the context now of uh, what could potentially be a, a very unpopular political decision. And I'll go back to these bailouts for a moment. Um, in New York, in order to keep a handful of nuclear plants upstate from closing because they're uneconomic. New York is committed up to seven and a half billion dollars 
to subsidize these uneconomic plants. New Jersey thought about it as well. And there was a $300 million bailout on their legislative agenda. They couldn't get it passed. So they're right there. You start seeing some pushback, some resistance. Um, in the United States, again, under the Infrastructure Act, there is the potential that the United States could get a bill for upwards of $16 billion to subsidize uneconomic nuclear plants around the country. Now, this is certainly not to uh, primarily make up shortfalls in electric production because neither New York uh, or uh, the United States generally is running short on generation capacity. We're really in reasonably good shape there right now. And it's getting better each day as we tilt up more wind generators and more PV panels and, and batteries and so forth. But the prospect, the political prospect of going to constituents and saying, we're going to make a, a generation, uh, electric generation decision that's going to be really expensive up front. And by the way, over the life cycle of this plant, we'll probably have to bail it out. There are going to be a lot of ratepayers who's going to, who are going to be who are going to chafe at that, and rightly so. And it's the big ratepayers, it's the industrial, the commercial class. They've got the most money on the line. They're the ones who are going to go first to the political leaders and tell them to hit the brakes on this. And that's the way it has has gone traditionally. Um, so, can you overlook that? If you can overlook all those. There was one distinct parameter problems that nuclear has that wind and solar don't, that e even even some of the fossil fuels don't, and that is disposition of spent nuclear fuel and other high-level waste. We have been working on this for years. Um, working, working probably begs definition in this context, but this has been a known problem for years. And industry people, nuclear industry people, have kind of a pat response when you go to them and you say, what are you going to do with the waste? Not our problem. It's the federal government's problem. Go to the federal government. What are you going to do about the waste? And you get, you get a, a silence that's really deafening. This was supposedly going to be taken care of through an act of Congress that was passed in 1982, the National Nuclear Waste Policy Act, which was supposed to take care of the back end of the uranium fuel cycle. After the uranium has been mined and processed and enriched, put into a reactor, used for fuel, take it out of the reactor. Now, what are you going to do with it? It's the, the most dangerous stuff on the face of the planet. It remains dangerous for hundreds of thousands of years. What do you do with it? Well, you could leave it at the reactor site where they have it now in these spent, spent fuel pools, essentially big swimming pools that are bore, that's impregnated with boron and, and uh, keeps nuclear reactions down. Guess what? Running out of room. Wolf Creek, right down uh, the road here in Kansas, is a good example. It went active in 1985. It allowed about 35 years of spent fuel to be accumulated. Now we're past that. So now what? Wolf Creek, like other plants, Callaway here in Missouri, they are going to have to take the oldest fuel out of their spent fuel pool. The, the fuel that's been in there the longest, cooling down, decaying the most. They have to take it out, build a facility on site, 
an interim facility, if you will, where they can let that fuel sit, continue to decay, cool down until a permanent repository is available. The history of permanent repositories in the United States is, is long and interesting, but I can tell you that it is also fraught with politics. For instance, in 1982, when this act was before Congress being considered, Congress said, we'll make the decision. We'll take the decision upon ourselves to decide where we're going to build a permanent repository for the nation's spent nuclear fuel. They had three finalists. One was Richland, Washington, down a southeast high desert part of Washington State, where the where there was also a, a high concentration of reactors already, from mostly from the weapons complex. Second candidate was Death Smith County, Texas, kind of up in the northwest part of Texas, really desolate area, really very sparsely populated. The third one was uh, Yucca Mountain, Nevada. It's 1982. 1982. The president of the Senate, the majority leader of the Senate, was a man named Tom Foley from Washington. He took a look at this and said, you know what? Texas and Nevada look pretty good to me. At this time, a man named Jim Wright was Speaker of the House from Texas. And he looked at it and said, you know what? Washington and Nevada look pretty good to me. Well, Foley, a Democrat, Wright, a Democrat, they got together and said, you know, the best place for this, we're just convinced the best place for this is Nevada. And so Yucca Mountain was selected. People in Nevada, absolutely opposed to it. I mean, if you want to be a politician in Nevada, you have to come out and say you're opposed to Yucca Mountain. Otherwise, you, you don't go anywhere. <laughs> so fast forward to 2008. From 82, when Yucca Mountain gets selected, and by the way, they funded the development of it, put billions of dollars into it, dug down, developed the site, not to completion, because there were a lot of problems with it. And it was constantly being slowed down um, by not only technical efforts, but, but political efforts. In 2008, Barack Obama was elected. 2008, Harry Reid from Nevada became majority leader in the Senate. Guess what happened in a couple of years after that? Defunded Yucca Mountain. Why? Because Harry Reid said, look, I'm no stupider than Jim Wright and Tom Foley. They didn't want it in their backyard jurisdiction. I don't want it here. And he got it defunded. So now what's left of the Yucca Mountain facility is just kind of sitting there waiting for somebody to either revive it, which will be politically very difficult to do, or move on to some other, to some other solution, quote, solution, end quote. So the nuclear has this unique waste disposition problem. Reactor owners, like Wolf Creek, are not looking forward to having to pull fuel out of that spent fuel pool Put it into a new facility that, guess what? It's got to be paid for. You got to go to the ratepayers and say, sorry about this. We got to have this. We're going to do this safely. And we all want it to be safe, right? Um, and this is going to happen all over the country, these nuclear plants. Some of it's already happening. So a number of reactors already have these on-site 
um, uh, facilities to store nuclear waste. And they want it off their property desperately. And you know what? I would too. If you've got this parked out on your property, being some of the most dangerous material on the face of the planet, you'd want it the hell off your own property. But where to take it? There's no, there's no active discussion in the United States right now about the final disposition of spent nuclear fuel. And I suspect uh, that it'll take a couple of generations. So what we're going to have is scattered around the country, these at-reactor facilities that are managing spent nuclear fuel that will remain dangerous for hundreds of thousands of years. By the way, <clears throat> in the when we were talking about the the well, let me just fast forward a little bit more. Currently, there is a case uh, that I was involved with down in Texas where they tried to establish a consolidated interim storage facility for spent nuclear fuel. They were going to gather spent nuclear fuel from commercial plants all around the country. They were going to take it down to a one facility, one facility that happens to be located in the Permian Basin. Permian Basin, if you're not familiar, familiar with it, has the highest concentration of oil reserves in the world. It exceeds what the Saudis have. The oil and gas people down there said, you can't do what? You're going to bring all the spent fuel down here? No, no, we, we're, we're still pumping down here, folks, and they are. So there was a collision between the nuclear industry and the fossil fuel industry, and it was rather interesting to, to, to watch. It's still not over. It's still not clear, you know, whether the legalities, there's a split in the circuits. Uh, some of the circuits are saying that the way we interpreted the law uh, is correct. There are other circuits that say it wasn't. But there's a catch in the 1982 law that gives the industry a real problem. And here's the catch. There were allowances for a consolidated interim storage facility built into that 1982 law. But it said this, crucially, you can't use a consolidated interim storage facility unless a permanent facility is available. Now, why would they do that? Because that consolidated interim, if it's built, it's being used, it's not interim. It's going to be permanent. And so they said you can't use these interim facilities unless you've got a permanent facility already built and ready to be put into service. They tried desperately to get around that language in the act, and we just kept beating them over the head with it. And we have gotten the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to agree with this. The D.C. Circuit does not. Uh, neither does the Tenth Circuit. So, unfortunately, this is probably headed to the Supreme Court, and it's going to be a real Donnybrook. Uh, what happens there? I'm almost out of time. I, I do want to leave some time for questions, but let me let me just leave it leave it with this thought. When you have the confluence of politics and policy and economics. It makes for an, a tremendously interesting study area. The, the area of political economics are, is, you know, really quite fascinating. It's when, when I, why I've focused so much on this work over the years. But it doesn't always make for a good policy. 
when you when you do allow those who have the most to make from particular projects to decide whether or not it should go forward. And although our regulatory agencies on paper have uh, the right and the, the means by which to stop most nuclear plants, rarely does that happen. It's really quite rare. The reason nuclear plants get stopped historically is because people in rooms like this. That's what happened out on Long Island. People in small groups started meeting saying, you know, what are we going to do? Become serfs to Long Island Lighting Company? Are we going to become, are, is this going to be the tail that wags the dog? And those discussions led to activism. That activism led to policy changes. Was there much pacing of the floor, wringing of hands and gnashing of teeth? Yes. We're talking about billions of dollars. We're talking about people who put their careers on the line. Is there going to be a fight? Yeah, there's going to be a fight. And I, I think that as the realities of costs and that there are alternatives uh, to nuclear, as those become more uh, and better understood over time, uh, I think nuclear will become an artifact of history that we will look back on and rather regret that we ever made this uh, policy decision in the first place to develop commercial nuclear power. Uh, our children, our children's children, will still be dealing with this. It is entirely likely that that uh, the spent nuclear fuel that's in these spent fuel pools today will be there 10 years from now, will be there 20 and 40 and 50, maybe 100 years from now. And we all have to be very concerned because uh, nuclear power plants, as we've seen in the last two years, year and a half, can be used as weapons. The Russians certainly uh, use Zaporizhia, the, the big nuclear complex in Ukraine, uh, for strategic and tactical purposes. I mean, they knew the Ukrainians would not bomb those reactors. They knew they would not fire artillery rounds into those reactors. They just knew they wouldn't. So what do the Russians do? They set up their own artillery batteries in between the reactor buildings. In between the reactor buildings, we're able to fire at will, knowing that there'd be no counter-strike. It's, it's diabolical. But from a military standpoint, it was incredibly effective. It takes a scoundrel to do it. But that's what wars bring. So... It's uh, there's a lot of moving parts in this. And, and as you can tell, I don't have any strong views about any of it, but I'll certainly do my best to respond to any questions that anybody might have. Thank you, Bob. That was a, a, from a perspective that we had. I've never heard before. So it was really useful. Sure. If you have any questions, if you'll come up there, we'll go on. So would you care to provide more specifics about uh, what you suggest concerned citizens do like PeaceWorks and Sierra Club and so forth. You bet. You know, it, I think it's it. Some of this work is is keeping track of what goes on at regulated facilities at, at nuclear plants, and the NRC does have access to their records and so forth. It takes a little time to get. They don't make it easy. I'll guarantee you that they they don't make access to their records easy, and I've had to sue them on a couple of occasions to get stuff from that we were clearly entitled to. But you can track things at nuclear plants uh, in terms of uh, what's being done with spent fuel. 
uh, problems that are that are coming up. You usually don't hear about problems at nuclear plants in the media unless they're really, really bad. But, you know, small problems can can be just as pernicious when you have an accumulation of them. So I think that it's important to monitor what goes on and when, and it's not if, but when utilities like Evergy in, in Kansas and, and Evergy over here as well, the owners of Callaway, the owners of Wolf Creek, when they show up wanting rate increases, people can mobilize and oppose those. It happened over in Kansas just recently. One of the reasons that the rate increase that Evergy asked for uh, uh, over there was cut back so far is because there was a public response that was not very kind uh, to the proponents of this. And so it's, it's some of it's just good old fashioned activism, getting in, finding out what's going on at a particular plant, how it affects people and in responding uh, through activism. And while these nuclear plants are big, complicated behemoth plants, a lot of the problems they have are pretty human, personnel, accidents, uh, the things that are sort of prosaic in, in most respects, but still can have momentous effects at a plant that's as, at, at facilities that are potentially as dangerous as nuclear plants. Pertaining to disposal, mm -hmm. Focusing for a moment on Yucca Mountain, mm -hmm. are indigenous people involved in that particular process? And if they aren't, are there other locations that have been proposed that indigenous people have views on? Could you talk about that? Sure can. And it's a mixed bag for sure. Yucca Mountain in particular, there have, uh, there, not at the beginning, <laughs> not a big surprise, uh, indigenous um, people had to essentially force their way into the process. They weren't initially invited. Uh, and I, I might add that, that their participation was tolerated, although not really, uh, I, I think, um, sought by any, in any meaningful way. There have been proposals to tribes to use reservation land for disposition of radioactive waste. For sure, that has happened. To date, none of those have come to pass where you've got an active um, dump site on a reservation. And most of that is because, again, there's been activism that's resisted it. Tribal elders or tribal leaders might think this is a pretty good idea because they see revenue coming in where it's not presently, and they might agree to it on the premise that oh, it's all quite safe, quite regulated. No worries. Uh, but the several instances when these proposals have been developed and have reached a decision point for tribes so far, uh, the the anti-nuclear forces have prevailed. But I have to say, I think it's a matter of money. You know, everybody has their price. And desperate people, economically desperate people in particular, do economically desperate things, like take chances that they would otherwise might take. So as spent fuel accumulates at reactors around this country, even though we're only down to 93 reactors, all these reactors, all 108 of them, have spent fuel pools on site that they're having to deal with spent fuel. Get an accident at one of them. That's something I just shudder to think about. But Fukushima 
had a failure of its spent fuel pool. And we know the consequences of that, or at least we're learning the consequences of it. If we ever had something like that happen in the United States, I think you'd probably see uh, efforts to, to go into reservation land and develop it for, for radioactive waste sites. There will be resistance. I mean, there was a there was a plan to build a, a radioactive waste dump site in north central Nebraska, Boyd County, lowest population county in the state, lowest per capita income county in the state. Coincidence? Also, at the time they were developing this, Boyd County was so remote that it was outside the broadcast signals of both Lincoln and Omaha for TV. Coincidence? The site was proposed in an area between the Missouri River on the north and the Niobrara, which is a wild and scenic river, on the south. They're going to put it right in between these two rivers. Then, to just make it even more outrageous, I went out and visited the site. I'm no wetlands expert. I've done wetlands litigation. I looked at it and said, God damn, this looks like a wetland. So I hired Kelly Kinsher from KU, a wetlands biologist. He went and did a site characterization study of it. He said, you know what? Those are jurisdictional wetlands. In other words, they come under the protection of the Clean Water Act. So I did a deposition of the developers of this site. And I said, have you ever been out to the site? I said, no, flown over it. I said, so you've never been there? I said, no. So you're not familiar with the stories that farmers would tell you of taking tractors out there getting them sunk up to the wheels and have to get another tractor, pull it out, and it gets stuck and have to get them. You, you've never heard the stories about duck hunting out there? You never heard the stories about in the wintertime when it floods, it freezes, and people go ice skating on it, and you want to build a, ra a radioactive waste dump there? I said, do you think that there's a relationship between water and radioactive waste that we ought to avoid? Well, you know, I was getting... This lawyer was for him. You know, he was intervening, said, trying to collar me at this point. And I said, you know, look, I looked at your resume. You've moved around a lot in your career. So when you move to a new city, do you buy a new house? He said, oh, yeah. I said, do you go look at it before you buy it? He said, well, thoroughly. We walked through it and said, did you do that with this plant, with this site for radioactive waste dump? No. Because I'm not living there. <laughs> Well, you're not. So there is out of sight, out of mind. And there's NIMBY. There's not in my backyard. That goes everywhere. I mean, there's that's really nobody's immune to that. And so there will be, over time, I think, some pretty epic battles to figure out where to disposition this radioactive waste. And you would hope that the traditionally weakest political forces in the country wouldn't be victimized by it. We do have a bit of a history on that. One thing to, say, to kind of be mindful of, Finland has recently, they're coming close to being done with a deep geologic repository for their spent nuclear fuel. And it may be, I mean, the, the anti-nuclear community is quite split about this. Because on the one hand, you can look at Finland and say, gee, they're going to they're gonna be able to get all the spent fuel off the surface, out of their spent fuel pools, they're going to take it down thousands of feet, and they're going to seal it off. And presumably, that's the best remedy. And they've gotten the public to support it pretty much. We need to probably take a lesson from how they went about doing that. And the reason that the anti-nuclear community is split 
is because there is a fear that if you if you solve quote solve and quote the waste problem that they'll want to build more nuclear plants and i i don't think that that's much of a problem again primarily because of the economics as i mentioned earlier nuclear is so much more expensive than renewables that most utility owners now uh would almost be prohibited by law to make a decision it was so contrary to their to their corporate interests yeah i'm glad you brought up uh, finland finland about 70 percent of the people believe in science believe in the engineering that's why they got got that going the politics is all behind it and what they did they're digging way down and it's a thousand feet or so but their casks are covered coated outside with copper which is anti-corrosive because we have a lot of copper artifacts that are thousands of years old. The bedrock is solid. There's no cracks or anything like that. And they're going to backfill it with concrete, which blocks even uh, gamma rays. With Yucca Mountain, that was totally political. ZOE was backed into the corner to justify Yucca Mountain when it could not be justified because it's, because it's basically made from fallen uh, volcano ash. And it's next to uh, the national testing site. And not only that, the re repository is 1,000 feet underground, and 1,000 feet under that is a water table. That's right. So it is totally unacceptable. And when you mention policy, economics, and politics, why isn't science included in any of this when it should be the major thing? Well, I think it's because, look, we have a, in the United States, there's a certain hostility towards science. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, and that hostility breeds ignorance, breeds. Uh, and, and that's that is. Unfortunately, that is an aspect of our society that uh, we're trailing far behind. I mean, there's a reason why the Finns, if you take a look, who, which country students do the best on tests, it's the Finns. Like really quite a bit. Four day school week. The other thing that characterizes Finland is that, teach, is that teachers are left alone by parents. The attitude is teachers are trained. They're professionals. They know how to teach. I'm a parent. I don't. I know. kind of know how to parent, I guess. But I sure don't know how to teach. And so they leave teachers to teach. And so the, the net result of that is a respect for science, uh, a reverence almost for science that does allow progress in certain policy areas that, that wouldn't happen here. So your question, why isn't science in it? Partly by design to avoid the kind of resistance that people frequently have on, on a knee-jerk basis about things scientific. And it's also because science itself would call into question some of these policy decisions. And so you get that split. And when that happens, that really makes things messy on the policymaking front. So what do you do? Do you try to integrate those dissenting voices and develop a policy that's more um more workable or do you silence the dissenters and that you know that's we have that dilemma in our country pretty much every day not only just about nuclear power issues but over a, a, a lot of issues that involve science thanks real, real quick one um the recent uh, uh termination of the wind uh, uh power in new jersey on that yeah, on the ocean. Yeah, sure. It looks as if uh, the same issue is occurring there. Do you have some thoughts on the economics that they're bringing to front to cancel that project? Yeah, uh, offshore, anything is going to be more expensive than onshore. And that difference, that incremental difference, does reflect in higher rates at some point. Uh, 
the the thing that I, I, I'm still somewhat optimistic about getting some of these offshore projects up and running, because if you take a look at the public opinion surveys, annually, there's a little more support for doing something about climate change every year. I mean, sometimes the increases are small, but they're always consistent. And over time, that's going to tip the balance so that a, a, a project like the one off Jersey or the one that's been really controversial is the offshore wind projects uh, uh, proposed for just off Martha's Vineyard. You know, the rich folks, Ted Kennedy said, I don't want to see wind generators on my horizon like it's his horizon. Anyway, uh, I think that the uh, consciousness about what needs to be done to combat the worst effects of climate change will eventually offset some of the opposition of these sorts of projects. But uh, in the meantime, they're going to be built out west. There are solar panels and wind generators. And when I say out west, I mean pretty much out anywhere west of Salina here, out to the west coast. The development, the transition to renewable fuels is happening. Finally. It's going to go in fits and starts, but the 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 direction is, I think, now unmistakable. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. The All Souls Forum is a production of the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church of Kansas City, Missouri. And now stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon, followed by the Happy Hour at 3 p.m. and the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. All right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio.